A man carrying a heavy suitcase at an underground station refuses to allow his suitcase to be scanned. He threatens to blow it up, is overcome and arrested. The transport police break open the suitcase and find inside a dead man. What murderer would be so crazy as positively to invite arrest? In the ten-part series, The Reticent Truth, the cerebral detective Yen Liang little by little understands what's been going on. He begins to realize that what he's investigating is a meta-story, a means by which his attention can be drawn to the real story. The real story is the violence and perversion of some very powerful people. That real story started many years before, when a rural school teacher was murdered because he uncovered the sexual trafficking of his pupils. Several people had tried to investigate, and because of police corruption and moral cowardice in the legal system, suffered. This detective series was transmitted earlier this year. As with Montalbano, the Sicilian detective series, the personality of the cop is a key attraction. The message is that there are always going to be greedy and corrupt people, but as long as there are some people with a sense of public service and responsibility, these matters can be sorted. Reticent truth indicts business leaders. Whereas the last very popular drama of this genre, In the Name of the People, indicted officials, both junior and senior, even right up to the top of government. This graphic illustrates their networks. We might deduce from such willingness to discuss weaknesses openly that China may be less corrupt than the European Union and many of its constituent countries, in which journalists have found themselves often so restricted that they give up. The heroes of these crime dramas, police officers, lawyers, whistleblowers, are inspired by heroes from China's past. They want to be upright officials, like the 11th century Bao Gong, serving society and adhering to the moral precepts of Confucianism. Chinese officials and journalists refer to Bao Gong in the way we might refer to Horatio Nelson, as a model of service to the nation. A difficulty in talking about the media, in very general, is that the media are everything from emoticons to museum displays to the more customary magazines and television programs of many different genres. China's media pose a further difficulty in that although very few Brits have ever come across China's media, they often have quite fixed views of them. They appear to believe, for example, that they consist entirely of political propaganda, as one ex-Foreign Office minister said to me not long ago. We shall see. By the way, conventional media are delivered in other languages, including French, Arabic, Russian and Spanish. I'll just play a little bit of For English. more highlights, let's cross live to my colleagues Tianwei and Mike Water right at that press conference venue. Hello, colleagues. What's the major takeaway from you? Okay, we don't need to hear much more of them. Now, my first objective this evening is to provide a quick overview of the media scene so that we can grasp its extent and variety and dispel the rather silly ideas about China's media being nothing but political propaganda. I want to give you an idea of what we can learn about China through its media, and I'm not looking at the omissions, nor am I fault-finding. I'm looking for what I can learn about this ginormous country and what ideas I can pick that might be useful for us. After the overview, I shall go on to look at three media phenomena which each tell us something about Chinese society and polity. The first will be the representation of the current pandemic, the second is the way that people talk about governance, including democracy. And the third is the working out of social issues in the media. First, the network sphere. At 900 million, the Chinese are the biggest group of internet users. And China is the biggest e-commerce market in the world. There are 1.3 billion mobile phones, and the majority are also used for news and entertainment. 60% of internet users watch TV online. What does all this mean for the rest of us? It surely means that China has seized the opportunities of the internet with colossal enthusiasm. It suggests that there will be, they will be at the forefront of cyber enterprise and AI, and that we are not just talking about an elite being attuned to the new world of commerce and development, but the use of the new technologies being generalized over the entire population. There are some other takeaways. Because of the government's insistence that China have its own search engines and social media platforms, the Chinese are not enthralled to the monopolists of Silicon Valley, Google and Facebook. 
We used to berate China for restricting access to the US-dominated internet. Now that we are aware of the huge power and possibly subversive influence of it, we're lamenting that we do not have our own alternatives to the media empires of Silicon Valley. Despite party influence on the media in China, it seems to many observers who come across Chinese students and uh, professionals that they are better informed about the world and better educated than many Americans and possibly many Europeans too. How is that possible? Access to the internet may be one reason. And then there is the vast amount of factual TV and net streaming, some of which we'll see in a moment. Curiosity as to how the West of the world works is notable, but surely the quality of school education, as in other parts of East Asia, is significant too. Chinese pupils have long come higher in PISA tables than many Western countries. When Chinese youngsters come to UK schools, they are famously streets ahead in their, of their local contemporaries. And as if that were not enough gall for us, new generations of students in the creative subjects, from fashion design to industrial design, media and music, are notably enterprising and innovative. We'd better watch out. Investigative journalism. Well, the agriculture ministry promotes genetically modified foods, but Sui Ying Yuan's blog exposed that the ministry's own canteen excludes them. Sui is a celebrity investigative journalist. Sui makes enemies among the powerful, but gives hope to 20 million followers. For them, his fiercest, fearless exposure of frauds, corruption, and malfeasance make him a hero. Thousands send him reports, and he reposts. Recently, Mr. Tsui has taken on the Supreme People's Court, the film industry and its star celebrities, as well as the agriculture ministry and its supposed experts on genetic modification. He demands that laws be upheld and condemns bad laws. He has berated China's most powerful man, the head of the party's discipline commission, Wang Qishan. Social media are the means by which millions of Chinese debate, complain and gossip. The authorities listen in carefully and take note, often adapting their policies in consequence. There is a long tradition of whistleblowing in Chinese governance, and modern investigative journalism emerged in the 1920s. Although suppressed during much of the period of Mao's rule, it had a second golden age in the 1980s and 90s, but is now going through a period in which considerable courage and chutzpah is needed to be involved with investigative journalism. TikTok from ByteDance has a huge take-up, two billion downloads. Why is it so successful? In the Anglophone world, it may be mainly exhibitionist. But in China, TikTok provides ordinary people, not exclusively youngsters, with opportunities to earn money by becoming fashion gurus or opinion leaders. And here is the biggest lipstick salesman in the world. CPB五号说，来一首就给我打个灯好不好？这个一定要打灯才看得出来不灵不灵。日常生活中涂它，你就会涂这种，你看它的波光感，你看它哦，哎，my Oh, he's quite fun. Um, when I was first in China, there were less than 70 newspapers. There are now over 2,000. They vary from mouthpieces of the party to liberal critical. Again, I have to say that times are not good for the critics these days, but these times will not last forever. China's most popular newspaper is a curious one, Reference News, a summary of foreign news reports originally exclusively for officials. It's now publicly available. The fact that a summary of foreign news is the most read newspaper is evidence of the interest in things international. People want to know what others think, and they want to learn from others who are more advanced or prolific. These are the four highest circulating magazines, two of which deal with family issues, one of which contains stories, often with a moral tone about daily life, and The Reader, which introduces and summarizes books. Current affairs magazines, the equivalent of our New Statesman, Spectator, and so forth, Prospect, uh, have a smaller circulation, but greater scope for critical discussion than newspapers. The two most important featured here are Truth Seeking, the Journal of the Central Committee of the Party. Uh, that's the one... Oh, oh, sorry, I've not moved. I apologise for this. I've uh, left you with the previous... There we are. Those are the 10,000 magazines. Um, here we are, Current Affairs... 
Um, the top left one is Truth Seeking, the Journal of the Party. And the uh, other most important one is um, the financial one next to it. Uh, Truth Seeking is the party's newspaper, uh, magazine, and the Journal of the Central Committee of the Party. And Finance is China's version of The Economist or Financial Times. The two leading financial magazines are essential reading for foreign businesses in China, or at least for their Chinese reading consultants and advisors. There are foreign magazines in China. Oh dear. Right. There are foreign magazines in China. I think we'll get all these up now. Um, scooping up much of the advertising for beauty project, products and uh, and fashion products. Foreign involvement in media is very circumscribed in China, and it's only in these kind of highly commercial product-orientated magazines that foreign companies such as Haymarket can get into the media market. Screen media. The medium engaging most people's attention and thus most influential is television, or as we should increasingly say, screen media, because of the variety of platforms. 1.2 billion access television. China has more broadcast channels than any other country. Average citizens watch television three hours per day, mostly drama, and China produces more programming than any other country. Its international market for uh, drama is growing rapidly, competing with Korean, Indian, and Turkish drama industries in particular. Uh, news. News programs are unashamedly the announcements of the authorities. National in the case of CCTV, China Central Television, but provincial, county, and city further down the tree. China Central Television dominates news coverage, with the state news agency Xinhua providing much of the content. Before President Xi, the national media had more autonomy, but Xi has tightened political control. Simulcast news, or Simulianbo, that is the, is the national news, daily 7 p.m., has an audience of 400 million and is followed by the provincial or local news. Since power in China is more devolved than in the UK, media also have distinct characteristics in different provinces. Provinces have populations equal or exceeding European countries. News programs in the provinces and counties are less formal, and their approach varies according to the local government and current management. In this photo, you see our very own Jeremy Paxman with his equivalent, Bai Yensong, an influential journalist who has been suspended on occasion for offending authority, but has always bounced back. I got them together for a conference on what is meant by public service media. There are threats to public service media in both countries, in the UK from hostile commercial competitors and in China from the party bureaucrats. Nevertheless, there is a vast number of current affairs talk shows in which much of the discussion is about economic policies and projects. Should we be concerned about people whose relationships are all with robots? Recently, two irreverent commentators led teams to debate this topic, on the ICE platform, Weirdo Says. Now in its sixth season, Weirdo Says is adored by millennials who join its cutthroat debates on such subjects as how to conduct relationships, making a career, coming out as homosexual, the limits of friendship, whether women need to choose between career or family, and how you should respond to your parents when they beg you to marry. The quality of debate is, important, is as important as the topic. Rhetoricians comment on the arguments and the use of evidence, as do viewers. The show has spun off books on public speaking, negotiating, and effective communication, with the premise that anybody has the right to an opinion and can develop skills to express it. China, remember, considers itself a democracy, even if its critics do not. After class is another chat show, a youth chat show, devised and produced by a former student of mine, uh, with some members of the production team as an English assistant, now a, a Scots assistant, actually, I apologise to her, now at Cambridge studying politics. She chose to spend her gap year learning Chinese and spent some time doing work experience on this chat show. 
Talent shows, China is replete with hundreds of talent shows, unsurprising in a country where people sing and perform jokes, poems and tricks every week at dinner parties and outings with friends. Uh, China has just produced what I think is the first virtual talent show. Again, from IGE, it pits 32 virtual contestants against each other, judged by three current celebrities. Winning contestants are expected to become commercially valuable idols, just like real human beings. In fact, more so, because unlike real human beings, they don't get tired and can be made to do almost anything. It seems that virtual idols attract fans just like human ones. I suppose the best thing you can say that it's much better to have a doll as an idol than a politician. The nation's treasures was developed in the UK on a China Media Center innovation and development course and has since been transmitted in China to enormous success. Nine major museums each present three national treasures across the episodes. Each treasure is explained by national treasure keepers. They're actually historical figures performed mainly by celebrity actors telling their stories. Eventually, nine winners are chosen by public vote from the 27 treasures whose stories have been dramatically reconstructed. With 800 million requests on television and video portal sites and over 1.7 billion online comments, the show has become an instant television and cultural phenomenon. The number of visitors in the nine museums surged by 50%. What does this tell us about China today? <clears throat> Pride in national culture, aspiration to be educated, consciousness of belonging to an influential country. These are all part and parcel of being Chinese today. As an English boy growing up in Italy as a child, I was very aware of the contrast between the story of England, a missionary nation whose greatest heroes were then military commanders, and the contrasting Italian view of Italy as a country of painters, poets, and philosophers. When Chinese leaders themselves talk about making China great again, and I use the slogan popularized in the USA, they don't talk about military leaders. They talk of science, the arts, and an ancient civilization of many achievements. They rarely refer to expansion, war, and enterprise, although there's plenty of enterprise, but refer to learning and cultivation. I think that it is important that our leaders dealing with China understand this. As Graham Allison, the American scholar, has written in his extraordinary book, Destined for War, Can America and China Escape the Thucydides Trap? It is very silly to assume that China's vital interests mirror those of the United States. China and the West are separated by deeply different civilizational values, and it is essential to understand that. This dating show, Fei Chan Wu Rao, Don't Bother Me If Not Sincere, recorded one edition at the University of Westminster in London. To generalize, we can say that dating shows are not about sexual attraction, but about mental, social, and emotional compatibility. And also about practi practicalities, such as, does the bloke have enough money to keep a wife and child in the manner she considers appropriate? The regulator has recently forbidden the mentioning of specific amounts of money, but many of the questions posed to the candidates are clearly aimed at finding out how well off either the man or the woman are. This is a society in which, notwithstanding the rise in the number of divorces, marriage is taken very seriously as a matter that affects the whole extended family, uh, plus the interests of generations before and after. There are many job shows in China, on Chinese television, and some of my students have appeared in them. Very similar to dating shows and at least as tough, candidates pitch themselves and get interrogated by potential employers. Young people are prepared for this by college life, which more and more includes opportunities for debating, pitching, and self-analysis. It seems to me that this is a really socially valuable use of television. Speaking of socially valuable, there are many programs lauding local heroes, people who have devoted themselves to charity or improving the environment or other good works. This extraordinary reality show was, to my great surprise, <coughs> a huge hit among young people. Five people with Alzheimer's run a cafe managed by actor Juan Bo. 
It's shot in a seaside village in Shenzhen, has very high ratings, especially among youth, and is sponsored by the largest mineral water company. I found it, I'm afraid, hard to believe that young people would really want to watch it, despite the ratings, until I talked a few days ago with some students in St. James's Park. They reaffirmed to me that they had watched every episode. Why, I said, what's interesting about watching Wrinkley's losing their minds? Well, replied one student, and all the others agreed. Our grandparents are the most important people in the world to us, so it's like being with them. 30% of what people watch on screen is made-for-screen drama, and 5% is films. Much of this is historical drama, apparently because people love the court intrigues, which are more prominent in Chinese historical drama than our fights. It is said that Chinese viewers liked Downton Abbey because it was all about intra-family intrigues. Dynasty dramas take history seriously and implicitly criticize today's politicians. Viewers are quick to see the resemblance between the realities of 21st century and times past. Some historical dramas connect the grandeur and glory of ancient China to current-day excitement at China's reinvigoration. This is a successful marketing CEO, Li Xiaoran. In the drama series, The Good Husbands, she wants to marry her former university tutor, a divorcee 20 years older than she. And here she is, trying to ignite his interest. But Li Xiaoran, that's the actress's name, by the way, will not marry without her parents' approval because she believes in the family as much as any Confucian grandpa. The approval is not forthcoming. There's a fight there on the left between uh, her fiancé, or would-be fiancé, on the right and her father on the left. And the fiancé has to be held back by the brother-in-law. When uh, that approval from her father is not, her father and mother is not forthcoming, but when her own sister is abandoned by her youthful husband, then Xiaoran's parents suddenly see some virtue in the older man. Every character, even the errant husband, cares terribly about keeping the three-generation family together, despite multiple threats and challenges brought about by the evolving position of women, urbanization, economic challenge, and the collapse of communist ideology. It's inspiring to see how drama and literature subverts the anti-family discourses of both Marxists and capitalists, even while reflecting the pressures on traditional family life. This is the first half of my life. This is uh, normally classified as a woman drama or a pink drama. There are two female friends, one a housewife mother, one a high-flying professional. The housewife's husband shacks up with a colleague. The housewife divorces, starts from the bottom rung of the drop, job ladder. Housewife then has to resolve her child's longing for his father, her younger sister's marital crisis, and her widowed mother's loneliness. The now ex-housewife struggles with all these problems and to find work, but is helped by the High Flyer's fiancé. Fiancé falls in love with housewife. Men are vile. <coughs> A Wenzhou family. This is the drama to which, to my mind, expresses best Chinese people's views of themselves and their struggle from poverty and backwardness. The Wenzhou father bullies his teenage daughter to emigrate to Italy to get rich, i.e. work as a virtual slave in a restaurant. His son trades in Siberia. Father sells the family croft and drags his wife into the big city sifting rubbish for reusable plastic. Sometimes driven to despair by the struggle to survive, <clears throat> all ultimately achieve some stability. They survive. Father makes the family fortune in the oil business. Daughter's business sense supports her parents through crises. Son settles down, opting out in the countryside that his father longed to leave, becoming a rural primary teacher in an impoverished village. Mother, who also becomes a successful businesswoman, is the bedrock. Wenzhou family is China's economic renaissance made flesh. It explains the toughness of parents and the sharp practice of business people, one step from failure and starvation. You may not like these people, but by God, you admire them. 
They make demands on each other, but they stick together and they never give up. This, I suggest, is how modern Chinese people see themselves. And now we come to the three big issues that I want to say a little more about. China's is a gargantuan media system serving 1.3 billion people and now with a growing number of participants, viewers and readers abroad. So it's risky to make generalizations, let alone to say that media stories and reports are truly representative of a nation as vast and diverse as this one. But I think to a great extent they are, and at the end I shall explain why I think that. Meanwhile, I shall take three themes, one of which is topical, i.e. the tackling of COVID-19. The second theme I have called our system, by which I mean the unending discussions which have gone on for a century and a half about how China should be run and what it should copy from the West and what not. These have moved to a very new stage in recent years for two reasons. One, the unending attacks on and criticisms of China by the USA and Europeans. They demand a response. And secondly, China's successes, and in particular her perceived successes in governance when compared to the USA, give China's thinkers the opportunity to explain why they believe that China's mode of government is more efficacious than that of Western critics. Finally, perhaps the most discussed issue of any, family life today, and in particular, the situation of women. The pandemic on screen. There has been, as you would expect, a vast number of programmes about the pandemic and its consequences in China, in Wuhan and in the world. Clockwise from left to right are four examples. The Chinese doctor is by an independent production company for an independent platform. It stresses the role of the medic and the difficult decisions that he or she has to make. The second, lockdown, one month in Wuhan, is a harrowing documentary about the panic that took over Wuhan in the early days and the ways in which people responded. It's social observation. How did people cope with their lives being shut down so suddenly? The CCTV official documentary, Fighting COVID-19, presents the heroic and self-sacrificing work of every arm of the public services inspired to work together as if in a war. In a, typical scene, you, in a typical scene here, you see medical staff reinforcing each other's resolve like soldiers going into battle. The same approach was found among transport personnel, the uniformed services, and industries commandeered to face the problems of provision. Finally, with you, portrays the individual and family stories in heart-rending detail. Although their emphases are all different, the messages of these programmes would be familiar to the UK's Second World War generation. For they are all, in their different ways, celebrations of solidarity and community in the face of terrible threats. That's not so different from the way in which we have chosen to see ourselves in similar circumstances although we are chary of stressing togetherness too much. We also make much of the failures of our government. It's always government. Whereas Chinese media eschews that line of inquiry and officialdom often shuts up the few lonely individuals who question the policies. Accentuating the positive is not only a domestic ploy. China's media abroad tend to report as positively as they can. Media academics call this constructive reporting. And there is an emerging theory to justify it as being less focused on the sensational, the depressing, and the violent. Reporters claim that they want to focus on how solutions to problems are being found, how victims are getting over their sufferings, and on projects to improve the environment rather than failures alone. At least, that is what they intend. This is China, is a one-man show more like a David Attenborough polemic than Andrew Neil's interrogations. It comes from Dragon TV in Shanghai. In this edition, Zhang Weiwei, the presenter, is out to inform his elite viewers, many of whom will have been educated abroad, or have sent their children abroad, that East Asia has overcome the virus better, and that what this tells us about governance in the West, and what this tells us about governance in the West and in China. He is not the only pundit 
pondering the fate of China, the world and global issues. There are several others. But Jiang has lived and worked in Europe and offers a perspective on his country which is informed by his knowledge of the West. He brings Western politicians and intellectuals onto his program as interviewees. In a recent edition dealing with the pandemic, he argues that responses to the pandemic, like responses to the global financial crisis of 2008 to 9, have revealed the strengths and weaknesses of different systems of government. He believes that it is a very good thing that there are different systems of government because it enables each, each government and each population to compare, contrast and learn from each other. Jiang Weiwei argues that not only can Chinese authorities take decisive action better than Western governments, but in dealing with whole society threats such as pandemics, they have no need for compulsion. The Chinese government, he says, can rely upon citizens' sense of solidarity and mutual responsibility towards others, and their trust in the authorities' competence. And their trust in authorities' competence is well attested, I should add, he doesn't say this, by opinion polls carried out by the American Pew Organization. Uh, it has long shown that Chinese citizens trust their governments more than Western citizens do. In support of this, Jiang shows how Chinese political decision makers are more highly educated, more experienced and more tested than Western political leaders. He doubtless has in the back of his mind the behavior of President Trump when he compares Western politicians unfavorably with Chinese decision makers. But he also makes a more profound point. He argues that Western politicians and opinion formers are deeply ideological, convinced that they and only they know how the world should be run. Their minds, he says, are closed to other ideas. If someone disagrees with them or even worse, does better with them, better than them, they must be an enemy. He says that their arrogance and prejudice inhibit them from learning, inhibited them from learning from the East Asian countries with their experience of SARS during the recent pandemic, so their people have suffered from the pandemic much worse than the East Asians. So much propaganda, you may say, and it's true that what Jiang says must be very pleasing to the party. But don't imagine that Chinese audiences swallow the party's ideas hook, line, and sinker. Just as they are canny shopkeepers, so they are skeptical consumers of media. In my experience, they read between the lines, think what is behind the stories, they reconstruct what they think may be the reality. This is not just because news media are dominated by the party, but because there is a deep aversion to credulity itself in the Chinese psyche. This has probably been reinforced by politicians attempting to impose Marxist shibboleths. But there are some other possible reasons. One great contrast with the Western world is that there has never been a transcendental religion of any sway among China's educated classes. Zhang points out that 18th century European thinkers admired China for its disregard of religious fantasies and superstitions. Jesus Christ, like Guan Yin, assorted Buddhas and ex-officials, are revered as good chaps who can be cited in times of stress. But in China, everybody thinks that they know that gods are all human creations. In the pick-and-mix world of Chinese superstition, the idea of blind faith, as Christians, Muslims and Marxists know it, is not part of the package. There are actually well-loved poems and stories eulogizing soldiers who ran away rather than die for some politician. The idea of being martyr for a cause, especially being martyr for a god or an idea which was dreamed up by some foreigner with a big beard, is ludicrous. Confucians have really never deluded themselves that humans are more than creatures of nature. But we are animals who need to be circumscribed and civilized by tenets and rituals such as those of Confucius. Especially after the ideological insanity of the Mao years, people are pragmatic. And as Richard Sykes of Imperial College noted on his visits to China, this pragmatism provides a very good basis for being scientific or at least empirical in their approach to everything. 
Thus, the gung-ho style of news and current affairs is both acceptable and like water off a duck's back. There is a second reason why, a possible reason, why the kind of carping and revelation of the squalid which we think of as part of the communicator's job may not be of interest. Chinese life has been so difficult, so unstable, so demanding for several generations that they may prefer their media to help them through life, give them useful advice and wholesome models because people have enough troubles not to want negativity when in front of the screen. And here's a third reason. The Anglophone media reflect a tradition of state-society opposition which is actually quite foreign to China. To my Chinese students, China is a family, sometimes, as George Orwell said of England, with the wrong people in charge. But if you do not set out, but you do not set out to get rid of your naughty parents, you seek to bring them to reason. There is in China no Her Majesty's opposition, but there are intellectuals, journalists, and now netizens who believe they have the right to supervise the powerful, and social media are their vehicles of choice. Zhang Weiwei is welcome for another reason too. For generations, Chinese were told they were inferior. When Europeans strutted around China telling the Chinese to buck up and become Christians, they smarted and lost faith in their own institutions. In Mao's time, the communists called for the destruction of their own culture and his replacement by a Western ideology, Marxism-Leninism, which, unknown to Chinese, had already been rejected by advanced countries. After Mao's death, Deng Xiaoping showed, how China, how backward China, showed China how backward it was compared to the USA and Europe. Another disillusion. Now, Jiang Weiwei and others want to restore faith in what is, after all, a great human civilization, which has recovered from trauma. And as Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd put it, over 30 years, China has pulled off the English Industrial Revolution and the Global Information Revolution combusting simultaneously and compressed into not 300 years, but 30. Zhang wants Chinese people to feel that they have, at last, restored their civilization. Below the picture of Zhang Weiwei uh, and his interviewer is one of my bookshelves where the yellow volumes are part of the so far 16 volume Civil Servant's Diary, a novel. Now, if you are a Trollope reader, then I can tell you that its author is a 21st century Trollope for China. Trollope's Barsetshire Chronicles in China are the Lingxi Province Chronicles of these books. Lingxi is an imaginary province. The analogy is apt in another way too. China's renaissance today is not merely economic and political, but cultural. There is a there is vast quantity of literature published and Civil Servant's Diary is by no means outstanding as fiction, it's just that it is extraordinarily interesting for what it tells us about how China is managed. Here's the story. Upon graduation from an insignificant local university, protagonist Ho, that's his name, is posted to the sticks at the lowest level of public servant in a backward province. Enthusiastic and innovative, he manages to build the road and bridge to connect his villages to the county econom economy and to transform their lives. His career takes off when the villagers ignore the party's candidate to elect him to head them, and he gets on the lowest rung of the civil service proper, where his abilities and social skills advance him rapidly. The story of this law graduate's career from village dog's body to mayor of a city is spellbinding. All the major issues of bedevil governance are there. The expropriation of farmland, the alienation of state assets, bank failure, the hated one-child policy, police brutality, media casuistry, factionalism among officials, nepotism, criminal gangs, suborning, ideological contradictions. Ho's relationships are sub-stories woven into the plot. His family life, his dealings with superiors and dependents, his love affairs, his own business ventures to supplement his pitiful salary how he networks with dining, dancing, and card playing. Ho and his credible adventures epitomize the human dimension of China's governance, 
where power is dispersed and officials are judged on their enterprise and their contribution to economic development and employment. From these novels, you can understand the role of officials in China's great leap forward of the past 30 years and why Chinese people tell all those Pew surveys that they're well-governed, despite the lack of electoral democracy. Now to family life. If you've had the pleasure of reading the great 18th century novel Dream of the Red Chamber, published at almost exactly the same time as Fielding's Tom Jones, you will know the model of family life, if not the ideal, that Chinese people have inside their heads and hearts. Several generations are living together, with the younger generation sharing life not only with their own children, but with their parents, to an extent that is quite extraordinary to Anglophone societies. Today, the multi-generational household is difficult to maintain, thanks to both communist ideology and to the housing policies of successive governments which have broken up families. Rural families can still manage them, and middle-class families, if they can afford it, will often group their flats together so that grandparents, siblings, and cousins are all in the same block. If they can work this, then mutual support and cultural transmission can go on as in the old days, and mothers are the ones to benefit most. In a world in which girls, especially only children, are conditioned to believe that they must have a career that flatters their parents, and in which men are not reliable breadwinners, multiple difficulties emerge. And these are reflected on screen day in and day out. The title of the series, All's Well, is ironical. Almost nothing is well. The father is the head of the family. He's bereaved, so the sons rally round. But he's a selfish hypochondriac. He expects his eldest to buy him a smart flat because he won't live in the house, which reminds him of his miserable life with his wife. The two boys have well-paying well -paying professional jobs and pretty working wives. But it is the daughter who is the most successful, managing a substantial fintech company, unmarried and with bitter memories of her parents favoring of her brothers over her, the mere girl. Uh, there she is with the, eventual, uh, the boyfriend she eventually found down in the bottom middle. There she is as a youngster arguing with her brothers. And the top left is the eldest brother with his father on his knees um, during one of his uh, headache sessions. She even ran away from home when her mother decreed that she should not go away to university, and she supported herself alone through her studies. Her brothers took no notice, nor did father, terrified of his bossy wife. Vicious arguments arise in the family over who should care for the widowed father, but none of the siblings question their ultimate interdependence, that they belong to each other. In Chinese families, the tie that binds is not between the husband and wife. It is that between parent and child which endures forever, even when the parent doesn't deserve the care his children will lavish on him. If that sounds far-fetched to you, it's not. In my experience of Chinese students and colleagues, they put their parents' wishes and needs before anything else. In all's well, the eldest son is prepared to sacrifice the interests of his own wife and child for father, but his wife's not having it. Both this series and A Wenzhou Family, to which I referred earlier, Reveal negative aspects, reveal negative aspects of the traditional family. They also show us the endurance of Confucian values and the reciprocity which cements Chinese society and underpins individual achievements. Family life is the theme of most soaps and TV series the world over. What is distinctive about the Chinese versions? The Chinese ones deal with what I would call mainstream issues, which the academic Su believes really address the concerns of the majority of people. These are moral issues, as they directly address how family relationships and values are threatened by an increasingly individualistic and materialist society. Relationships between siblings, between children, parents and grandparents, between lovers. There is conflict between individual desire and family interest, between modernity and tradition, between family life and national political turmoil. How to adapt to modernity, yet keep hold of values developed over generations. Men's proclivity for polygamy compared to female preference for monogamy. How to be a loyal and good person, despite the pressures of modern family life, of modern life. Being a decent member of society, Zoren is the Chinese expression, has long been the key life aim in this society, more important than personal achievement.
filial duties, in-law relationships, parental responsibilities, the maintenance of family harmony and an extended family are constantly recurring themes. By comparison, UK TV shows ostensibly dealing with the family, Brookside, EastEnders and Holyoaks come to mind, often focus on the outlandish or titillating and liberation from tradition, addiction, dysfunctional families, gender confusion and minority relationships are prominent. The depiction of working class people on UK television is, according to Owen Jones, squalid and humiliating. The only way I can explain this difference is that the British media class may be more ideological than China's, propagating its own ideology rather than reflecting ordinary people's lives. Moreover, hedonism and self-assertiveness are not presented as negative as they tend to be in China. Chinese media writers and directors are keen to warn people about what they see as selfish Western, selfish individualism. Sometimes China's drama compares Chinese behavior with that of Westerners. They can do so smugly in ways that show that they consider themselves morally superior. Where they appear in the screen programs that I have seen, Europeans are flawed but basically decent people, as in the Wenzhou story. They're often weak, selfish, prejudiced, and ignorant of anything outside their own countries. Although they can show kindness, as in a French lawyer who helps out in the Wenzhou family, they are not, on the whole, very impressive. American society, on the one hand, is morally corrupt. For example, the American protagonist of a TV drama series filmed in the USA is portrayed as a self-centered man who manages his business ruthlessly, has little concern for his employees, and cares about nothing beyond making money. In one scene, his girlfriend, Guoyen, asks him what he loves more, money or her, and he replies, money. In conclusion, I am not suggesting that all Chinese mainstream media are responsible and uplifting. There is a lot of vulgarity and silliness, but the main melody is the communitarian sense. There is a motif running through the mainstream media that we are all in it together, facing common challenges. These are the challenges of personal development, of responsibility to others, of social disintegration in the wider community, and of hostility from the world outside China. Chinese viewers and readers and listeners know very well that their news media are circumscribed, that the censors work overtime, and that, increasingly, since President Xi came to power, you must be careful what you say. But they say that's life, and it's not necessarily permanent. China has gone through open and closed periods, and anyway, nothing today approaches the awfulness of that life lived by their grandparents. Although Jiang Weiwei and some other intellectuals have recently taken to pointing out the greater success of Chinese governance and economic development, there has been no sense, at least until very recently, of ideological superiority or righteousness as in a battle of good and evil. Ex-President Trump's view of the world as competition has no dead ringer in China. This is perhaps the greatest difference between Chinese media and ours. We tend to assert that our ideology, electoral democracy and human rights, is best, nay, the only one worthy of respect, and our version of democracy and our version of human rights are the only ones worth, worthy of respect, whereas the Chinese advance no more than what works to make people better off, to benefit people, is what matters. The roots of this lie in the philosophical difference between our two civilizations. The West has long been seized of a monotheist universal religion whose sects and factions have fought over theology for generations and extirpated challenges. As science undermined the Christian story, if not Christian ethics, its place was taken for many people by a secular religion, Marxism in its various forms. It too claimed to be universal and liquidated doubters. Today, we have another kind of religion uh, without a name. But China has had no wars of religion until the Marxism-inspired campaigns which culminated in the Cultural Revolution. And although a minority of its educated classes took up communism or secularized Christianity, they abandoned it once they saw the damage done by faith and superstition. 
as Deng Xiaoping had it, Deng Xiaoping, the uh, leader who restored China after Mao's destructive period, as Deng Xiaoping had it, they seek truth from facts, cross the river by feeling for stones, and eschew modern superstition. And by modern superstition, he must have meant both market liberalism and Marxism. Finally, the media generally reflect that optimism and enthusiasm for life, which is typical of China today. We might ask, how can they dare to be optimistic when we are so down in the mouth about everything? When we are so down in the mouth about everything. For several generations, China went through hell, a society disintegrated under the last dynasty. Governance collapsed from the blows of imperialism. The Japanese raped, tortured, starved, and butchered much of China. I have recently been reading accounts of British and American witnesses and was even worse than what the Germans did in Poland. Then Mao Zedong competed in cruelty with Lenin and Stalin, slaughtering nearly 100 million in evil campaigns to impose a foreign ideology. And much of this is within living memory. Now, China is, in its own view, strong enough that its enemies fear to attack it. Smart enough not to be dependent upon abroad for economic survival, and wealthy enough to help other countries develop. Free enough for people to look on their children's future with equanimity. The optimists foresee the restoration of the traditions of what they call China's enlightenment of the fourth century BC, and a renaissance in culture, creativity, and science. We Brits had such an age of enthusiasm and expectation under Queen Victoria. Now, China thinks it's China's turn. These are some takeaways from China's media today. Thank you for your attention.